I'm not Jimmy Stewart, and this isn't Bedford Falls, but what you've got here is a podcast, a classic TV and movie podcast, with people talking about some television shows and movies that are pretty terrific. Now, I know you're busy. I'm busy, too, and every once in a while, you you just got to make some time here to remember how things used to be. And if you do, I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's a wonderful podcast. I'm Ed Gross, and this is TV Retrovision, the classic television and film podcast where we celebrate all our yesterdays, today and tomorrow. The Judy Garland Show ran for a single season from 1963 to 1964 on CBS, and despite a troubled production history, ultimately revealed itself to be one of the most innovative variety shows ever created. But one cannot look at that show without looking at Judy herself, in the years leading up to it, and what happened in its aftermath. To do so, we turn to John Fricke, recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on the subjects of both Judy Garland and The Wizard of Oz. Besides being involved with a number of acclaimed documentaries, he's also the author of such books as Judy, A Legendary Film Career, Judy Garland, A Portrait in Art and Anecdote, and The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, An Illustrated History of the American Classic. Please join us, if you'll pardon the cliché, over the rainbow. Let's start with this. Obviously, there's a lot to Judy Garland before the Judy Garland show and after the Judy Garland show. But let's let's look at the circumstances that led to the Judy Garland show, if we could do that. And, and I'd love to get a sense from you of sort of what the situation was that she decided or had to do a TV show? She did not have to. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the, the basic reason, for, I can go, let me go back to sure. 1959 and give you a quick um, summary of those, those next four years. Sure. 1959, in 1950, November 1959, she was hospitalized here in New York. She had blown up at four feet, four feet 11 inches tall to over 180 pounds. Uh, she was clapped in the hospital. They did not expect her to live. She had been walking around without knowing it for a couple of years with hepatitis and her body, no matter how much she dieted, she didn't lose weight because all of the excess weight was fluid. Her liver was backed up, uh, after years of, uh, tonics and prescription medication and all the rest of it. Uh, there are, uh, depending on which gossip monger you listen to they'll say oh no 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 it was it was cirrhosis it was cirrhosis but she was it was diagnosed as hepatitis and when she died a decade later there was no trace of cirrhosis oh really okay yeah none they they one of her less intelligent doctors in london said oh i told her she was living on borrowed time five years ago uh with cirrhosis and so there'd been all these headlines and the uh the coroner and the whoever oversaw the autopsy said, I would like to make it perfectly clear that there is no evidence of cirrhosis. There was no alcohol in Miss Garland's system. This is purely the uh, accidental occurrence of someone who has uh, taken too, uh, many, uh, too many sleeping pills and who was so frail, I'm uh, ad-libbing now, but who yeah. was, whose weight was down to 90 pounds and who just couldn't sustain didn't have the strength to sustain her regular dose of sleeping pills. Okay. Anyway, so, but in 1959, 180 some pounds, 
Um, they drained 20 quarts of fluid from her body. Wow. They told her she could never, under any circumstances, work again. She was 37 years old. Uh, the, the classic story, of course, is that when the doctors, after two weeks of treatment and fluid draining, came in, all the specialists uh, surrounded her bed to give her, you know, the ultimate prognosis now that she was going to live. Uh, again, Miss Garland, you are a permanent semi-invalid. Uh, everything you eat or drink from now on must be monitored. It goes without saying that you can never work again. And Judy listened to all of this sitting there in the bed and then fell back on her pillows and said, whoopee! <laughs> because, again, as she put it, she had been working, you know, for 30 years full-time at that point. You know, she started at two and a half, but certainly by the time she was seven, uh, you know, it was short films and radio shows and vaudeville and vaudeville and vaudeville and vaudeville and, vaudeville and then MGM at 13. Right. So uh, she and she said she just wanted to get well and be with her children. You know, they they were what really mattered to her. Not singing, not being an entertainer, just taking care of her kids. Well, she made this kind of miraculous recovery, and by August 1960, she was in England, kind of like R and R. She'd done a couple. She'd recorded an album for Capitol uh, earlier that summer, and uh, had sung for the Democrats at the national convention. Uh, supporting JFK uh, that summer in Los Angeles. Uh, but she went to England, again, to make more records. She was under contract at Capitol, and they wanted to get stereo recordings of her greatest hits. They only had them in mono. Right. So she was going to go over on vacation, and they said, well, would you do this while you're there? Mm. And she said, sure. And her voice was in such great shape. She had been resting. She was at the floor of whatever medication she was allowed to take. Uh, she was only allowed to drink a very mild white wine. Uh, she was healthier as an adult than she'd ever been. And because there was always the need for money, she said, well, I feel so good and I'm singing great. She put together her first one-woman concert, the woman who was should never sing again. Right, put exactly. together a two-and-a-half-hour, 30-song program, which she did at the Palladium, did uh, in Amsterdam, in Paris, did all over the U.K., across autumn into early winter of 1960 and this was this was the carnegie hall the birth of the carnegie hall concert it was basically the same idea and people were falling over i mean there'd always been judy garland live you know with the dancers and the costume changes and the chorus boys and all of that but this was so pure the programs ultimately read act one judy act two more judy <laughs> and uh she just she just went out and did it and with you know, uh, when she went, uh, when she was in London, she had many of the recording musicians on stage at the Palladium with her who knew the book. But when she toured, it was whatever local musicians in Manchester or Paris or Amsterdam could be found with her own conductor, and you know, usually her own pianist and maybe a first trumpeter, and uh, no special lighting or uh, effects or scenery. It was just a woman alone with a twenty-eight or thirty-five piece orchestra singing. 25, 30 songs. And this is when the rush down the stage to shake her hand started. And, and when she was all of a sudden, a year earlier, given up for dead, and now this astounding solo performer. Right. Well, that brought her back to the U.S. under the management of Freddie Fields and David Beagleman. B-E-G-E-L-M-A-N. And uh, whose later nefarious deeds indeed caught up with them. Beagleman shot himself uh, 
but uh, didn't he also? Were, is he the one who embezzled the money? Yep, from, from Sony Columbia. or Columbia Pictures. Yep. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, a real, a real jackass. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Sid Luft turned her over to them for a promise of money. He said, "Oh, you guys manage her." You know, since I've, you know, I've got my other projects to work on. Some he wanted to put stereo music into airplanes, which was not a bad idea. It's just that Sid was never much of a businessman, so it fizzled. And Freddie and David came in and took over. Right. And she and she herself was healthy and successful, and she said she had no desire to, you know, she wasn't sure how she felt about Sid anymore romantically, but she knew that all of her financial troubles, and at that point she was probably $300,000 in debt. Wow. All of that grew out of Sid's handling of her money for the preceding decade. So she trusted Freddie and David. Well, what Freddie and, you know, when Freddie and David realized what they had, uh, they booked her nonstop. In calendar year 61, she did 40 of those one-woman concerts. Oh, my God. Uh, including Carnegie Hall, including the Hollywood Bowl, including the Newport Jazz Festival. Uh, and she, in, in effect, plus they put her in Judgment at Nuremberg, or Stanley Kramer wanted her for Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, so she did the concerts and Judgment at Nuremberg and some more recording. Uh, at the end of uh, 61, she recorded all the songs and the voice tracks for Gay Paris, the animated cartoon uh, where she was singing by Arlen and Harburg, who had done Wizard of Oz, right. a prestige production. Um, Chuck Jones, UPA, who had done Mr. Magoo and Gerald McBoing Boing. I mean, again, the momentum was just amazing. The Carnegie Hall album, the concert was in April, the album came out, the 2LP set came out in July. By September, it was on the top of the stereo and mono charts. It was the fastest-selling two-record album in history. Wow. Um, and, uh, all, again, Judy Garland was literally back from the dead. It was like, holy cow. So she finishes 1961 with all of that under her belt. In uh, early 62, she tapes a CBS TV special with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, right. shown in February, that became the highest-rated special program on CBS to that date. The day after this acclaimed TV special, she was nominated for an Academy Award for Judgment at Nuremberg. Wow. She was in the middle of shooting A Child is Waiting for Stanley Kramer the, and Bert, with Burt Lancaster, the movie about uh, mentally challenged children. And she went off to England then in the <clears> summer <throat> to make uh, I Could Go On Singing with Dirk Bogart. In September, she came back. We're into 1962 now for the Sinatra Martin special, the two movies, Child is Waiting, Lonely, uh, I Could Go On Singing. In September, she did six weeks at the Las Vegas Sahara, one show a night. She was supposed to do three weeks. They held her over for an extra night. She was doing such business that they said, you know, we've got acts booked now for 8 o'clock and midnight for the next two weeks. Would you consider doing a show at 2.30 in the morning? Oh, my God. And she said, I'm always up then anyway. Why not? So she was up so, for all this, John. Well, she saw it as a way of getting out of debt. She okay. and Sid had separated and gotten a, and reconciled and separated again across all this time. Right. He was threatening to have her named an unfit mother and saying that she was hiding $2 million in earnings. And, you know, m meanwhile, he had lived off of her for over a decade. And right. now he didn't love the fact that, you know, plus she had fallen in love with David Beagleman, who was manipulating her. Uh, I don't think it's that's any exaggeration at all. Right. Manipulating her while uh, robbing her blind, as Liz Smith, the columnist, said years later. Um, 
so Sahara, six weeks, sold out every night for six weeks. Uh, in November of 62, Gay Paris is ready to open. She does the premiere in Chicago and then agrees to do the Jack Parr program. Jack Parr then had a weekly Friday night hour on NBC. He had forsaken The Tonight Show months before. Right. To get Judy Garland on a talk show, uh, you know, and now by now, Carnegie Hall had been on the charts for a year. Uh, Judgment at Nuremberg was still in theaters, Academy Award nomination, uh, these other three movies, uh, Gay Paris ready to come out, two more movies in the wings, another TV special to do right after the first of the year in 63. It is no exaggeration to say she was the hottest act in show business, had right. become that in the preceding 18 months. Everybody wanted her. Um, the Par show... Uh, the fact that here you saw, and she'd lost all the weight by this time. She was down to 103 pounds. She'd been living in Vegas. She had a tan. She looked healthy. She looked right. Uh, and she walked out on the par show to a standing ovation from the studio audience and sat down and talked. And nobody had heard, unless you saw Judy in person, where she would tell anecdotes between songs, nobody knew what a raconteur she was mm -hmm. and that she had this endless fun fund of stories about vaudeville, about MGM, about uh, her concerts, about her friends, uh, some who weren't friends any longer after the stories were told. Yeah, I'm sure. But, you know, but again, uh, she, she was fun and funny, and she looked great, and she sang three songs from Gay Paris, and the audience just went nuts. So on the strength of all of that, the Carnegie album, the tour, Nuremberg, the Sinatra Martin special, especially the Sinatra Martin special and the Jack Parr program. In December 1962, all three major networks were bidding with Fields and Beagleman for a weekly Judy Garland show. And they convinced her that this is what she should do, that she shouldn't do any more movies right now. She should do her special in early 63, but then she should do a TV series. And don't worry about the workload. You know, it's... It's an hour a week that you'll be sharing with her. They <laughs> yeah, maybe right. sold her a bit of goods, you know, yeah. a bill of goods. And um, they got her, they went to CBS, because CBS gave her, Mike Dan, Mike Dan, D-A-N-N, was a VP at CBS at that point. And we interviewed him just about uh, 18 years ago for the American Masters Garland documentary. Okay. And as he said, um, it was the single biggest talent deal in history. It was $24 million for four years. Oh, my God. It was $24 million across four years if all the options were picked up. That they would pay her that, and then she would pay for the series out of that. You know, her company would produce it. And she would own the tapes outright. Right. Um, she could not cancel... She could not cancel the show after 13 weeks. They could not cancel her after 13 weeks. I'm sorry. They could not cancel her after 13 weeks if the ratings were good. They had to keep her if she wanted to stay. So it was a great deal. The trouble, as Mike Dan said, two trouble, two problems. First of all, Fields and Beagleman made this great deal, but they knew nothing about placement. And we put her on opposite Bonanza which was the number one program in the country, had been full color on NBC Sunday nights from 9 to 10. Right. And he said we did that for uh, one major reason. Her special with Sinatra and Martin had been shown in that time slot and blown Bonanza totally out of the water. And again, Judy Garland's biggest star, let's put her there. She, we we want to knock Bonanza off the top 10 ratings. We'll have Judy Garland do it. 
He said, now, but if Fields and Beagleman had been savvy, they wouldn't have let us do that, not only because of the overwhelming challenge of it, but because it meant she was following uh, an hour of variety on the Ed Sullivan Show. You don't put two variety shows back to back. Not at all. But Fields and Beagleman knew nothing and sold her this bill of goods. Again, you have to remember, not only were they getting, um, I think the original budget for the show every week was $150,000. So they were getting... 15 to 20 of that off the top every week as her managers. Right. They were also getting percentages of all the salaries of any of their other talent they could book on the show, (laughs) be it guest stars, be it writers, be it producers, directors, all of that. This was their, their honey. This, this was, this was, the deal was in their favor. Now she could walk away with a good chunk of change between, you know, around 30, $35,000 a week. But, Again, the show would rest on her shoulders. So she got the show because she was the biggest star in show business, because all the networks wanted her. And then Freddie and David scuttled her by not knowing about scheduling. CBS used her as they thought they should. They started tape. Now, is that enough background? Oh, that's plenty. That's great. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All by heart, like the Pledge of Allegiance. You know your stuff, John. (laughs) Oh, Well, anyway, so... They bring in George Slaughter, who was uh, had been around TV. He was only in his early 30s. Uh, they, uh, the Bill Hoban, veteran director, uh, some good writers, Mort Lindsay to do the orchestra. George Slaughter's one misfire at the beginning was hiring Mel Torme to do special material. Because um, having Mel Torme write for Judy Garland is like having, you know... Um, Lenny Bruce, right, for Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's perfectly fitting. Yes, go ahead. Because, <laughs> again, he's so cool and so hep and so kind of above it all, whereas Judy's emotional impact is visceral. You know, she's right there. You can't, you can't give her repetitious kind of jazz riff, same lyric over and over, because she, she sings every word for its worth. Um, right. Anyway, they were stuck with Mel Torme which was another problem later. Anyway, uh, Schlatter's concept of the show, and he started taping in June of 63, with the idea being that by the time they premiered in September, she'd have maybe like 10 or 12 shows in the can, and then she could take it easy a little bit. She wouldn't have to, you know, keep churning them out every week. She could have a week off, a week here and there. Well, his format for the show was to do big... um, to showcase Judy as the world's greatest entertainer, not to do the average variety show. Uh, you know, it, it, that there would be, a, you know, some things week after week that would be uh, stet. You know, it would always end on the runway with the trunk. And uh, there'd always be a duet medley with the guest. Uh, eventually, he added the T for two spot where she would sit and chat with the guest the way she had chatted with Jack Parr. That's fine. That's all. But it it vacillated across the five shows as to just what was happening when and how. He got great guests. They they're all everybody was clamoring to be on the Garland show. Um, And after five shows, CBS canned him because they had done without anybody's knowledge uh, test screenings of the shows. uh, You know, like in America's Heartland. Where people, it was like, oh no, Judy Garland, you know, she drinks. Uh, she was mean to her mother. You know, all the <laughs> oh, geez, legends were right, being, right. yeah. And and um, and again, she was in the first couple shows. Uh, the singing was brilliant. 
uh, and and her uh, anecdotes were were very very funny. But they're funny now. Back then, people were not used to seeing unscripted, casual conversation in prime time. You know, Dinah Shore never spoke a word on TV that wasn't read from a card. Right. Uh, all of you know, variety shows were like Gary Moore. They were all very carefully uh, scripted and. Um, and Judy's show was to a certain extent, but they would say, okay, Judy, we'll sit and talk to Terry Thomas. Judy, tell the story about the London press conference. That's what the cue card would say. Right. And, and she would fill in. And when these shows started to be reshown in the 1980s, when TV had gotten to be so much looser, I mean, two years after Judy's series, Dean Martin came along with the most informal variety hour oh, yeah. in the history <laughs> of anything, and it worked. But... Um, no, no, they. And again, I think there were too many people watching TV on a Sunday night who, you know, expected Judy Garland still to be not Dorothy, but in her MGM, you know, All American Girl guise. Sure. No, she wasn't. She was electrifying. She she was terribly approachable. She was wonderfully sincere. Um, and you look at her now and think, God, how could America not love her in these shows when they listen to what she's doing? When they look at her singing with the guests. Um, anyway, it was it was wrong for the time. Uh, they CBS felt as as good as those five shows are, uh, individually and collectively. Uh, so they can slaughter and the writers, and um, brought in Norman Jewison, who had done the special for Judy and Frank and Dean, paid him a fortune. Oh yeah, and um, he could only do eight shows because he was signed to do a movie starting in November. But he said, I'll, he said, Judy, Judy loved him and trusted him. And he said, Judy, and she loved Schlatter. And, and, and uh, she had no complaints about any of them. Meanwhile, there, you know, Jerry Van Dyke was, uh, Jerry Van Dyke is the other thing that was foisted on them. Jerry Van Dyke was the pet uh, player of Hunt Stromberg Jr., a CBS executive, who wanted to make Jerry and Carol Williams, if you remember her, a star, you know, these were his idea of stars in the making. Uh, Don Knotts, you know, all of this kind of every man sort of appeal. Well, Jerry was being given miserable material. Uh, it, it was just all, it didn't gel. Uh, they needed more of a format before they went in than sure. Slaughter gave them, although his format was intrinsically fine. But, okay, so they fired him, they brought in Norman Jewison, and new writers. Uh, the new writers decided to have Judy go heavy on comedy lines. And, you know, their comedy was, you know, Judy saying, yeah, I used to be fat. Um, you know, I, you, Judy, why didn't you show up at rehearsals all week? Somebody would have, you know, it was that kind of, let's put down the legend. Right. Let's make the legend accessible. All wrong. Which is crazy, yeah, for somebody like Judy yeah. Garland to do that makes no sense at all. No, and Norman Jewison knew this too, but he said, "Let's let's do what they want us to do. We'll get you renewed. You know, get we'll get you renewed for a second thirteen weeks." He said, "You'll be renewed anyway because they have to renew you." But right. he said, "Let's let's do some good shows in the process." And after a couple of you know getting into this new format of Judy being the butt of jokes and um, Jerry Van Dyke asking her, "What's a nice little old lady like you doing on television?" Oh, you know, it's just uh, impossible stuff. Um, meanwhile, she's out there cranking it as best she can, uh, putting on the show. Uh, she starts to, uh, you know, she starts to miss rehearsals out of her own insecurity. 
you know, it's like, I don't, you know, I don't want to, what am, what am I going to have to face today? You know, right. what are they giving me now? Meanwhile, she, she got in there, she learned it uh, always. Uh, would the shows have been better if she always knew what she was doing? Well, yes and no. There really wasn't much, they weren't giving her enough Judy Garland stuff to do. They were trying to make her dinosaur. They were trying to make her show the Gary Moore show. You know, appealing to, again, they said, we want to appeal to the heartland. Well, uh, people, there were so many letters in the press and in TV guides saying Judy Garland is a sophisticated, uh, you know, entertainer to try to, you know, you know, to put her up against Bonanza. You know, that's like you don't put Noel Coward up against a Western. It was right. one of the phrases somebody used. And um, meanwhile, the, we, her ratings the first week uh when nobody knew what to expect, blew Bonanza out of the box. But this was one of the early shows produced by Norman Jewison with the phony format. Right. And what's a nice little old lady. And she was not in good voice. She had laryngitis. And uh, it was not a good... It was, it was an okay show. But it was not, not what you'd expect from the Judy Garland show. And the second week, you know, half the audience was gone. Right. But she, she was had a twice as large an audience as Bonanza and her other competition, a drama show called Arrest and Trial, Arrest and Trial on ABC. Okay. The second week was supposed to be a show with, the big guests were George Meharis and Jack Carter and oh. Leo DeRocher. Wow. Perfect for Judy Garland, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, again, is CBS uh, futzing with, the, with everything. The guests imposed on her. Uh, at the last, but that was scheduled the second Sunday night. I'm not going to take you through all 26 shows, I promise. Um, the, uh, but the Friday before, two nights before the telecast, Judy had insisted on having 21-year-old Barbara Streisand as her guest. Right. You know, pre-Funny Girl on Broadway, Barbara had albums and had done some TV and was doing nightclubs. But Judy had seen her at the Coconut Grove that summer in L.A. and said, before she leaves town, I have got to have her on my show. CBS wasn't keen on that idea. Barbara Streisand, who? But Judy insisted. And so on that, this, the taping, um, Sunday, September 29th was the first show with Donald O'Connor, the fair to middling show. Uh, the next show would have been Sunday, October 6th. On Friday, October 4th, she taped the show with Barbara and the Smothers Brothers as the adjunct guests. Ethel Merman made a surprise walk-on. I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube, but it is... I am not, uh, no. Oh, one of the things that Schlatter introduced was a spot called Tea for Two, as I said, where Judy would sit and talk with her guests. Well, this night she's sitting talking with Barbara Streisand, and all of us, and Judy says, you know, one thing I love about you, you really sing out, you really belt a song. There are very few of us left, and of course the audience applauds. And then when they stop applauding, you hear from the background, you don't need analyzing, <laughs> and there is Ethel in the That's audience. Great. Now, Judy knew she was, you know, this was more or less planned, uh, but the audience didn't know, and Barbara didn't know. So Ethel gets up on stage, and they talk about Funny Girl. Ethel just kind of takes over, and Judy encourages this. Throughout the series, Judy was the biggest cheerleader in the world for her guest stars. Uh, she throws focus to them. She throws attention to them. Um... As a result, you can't look at anybody but Judy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but anyway, uh, it, it's amazing. And then they all sing, there's no business like show business together. And you cannot hear Barbara at all for Judy and Ethel. And you can barely hear Judy for Ethel. Right, but it, well, it's, it's Ethel Merman, great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great spontaneous show business moments. And this show was sensational, but the audience was back watching Bonanza. 
Um, one other point of and Barbara, who venerated, you know, was thrilled to be on the Garland show and has never ever said anything but the uh, most glowing things about her, which is not necessarily customary for Miss Streisand. Right. But she said she said she didn't understand why Judy was so nervous. She, you know, that Judy would would tremble. That Judy was so, you know, wanted wanted it all to go well. Well, two reasons. Number one, the show was the Judy Garland show. And number two, Barbara said, I learned later, the older you get, the more scared you are of, you know, having to live up to, having to be what you were, having to always top yourself. Barbara said, I understood that completely when I got older. Yeah. She said, but she said, Judy was so generous. She said she gave me two solos and the T for two spot and two duets and the great, the great line she said, and she said, and she didn't have to do that, you know. I wasn't Barbara Streisand then, That's right. you know, in her Brooklyn, <laughs> uh, the Brooklyn punchline right. at the end of it. So they taped and taped, and the show got renewed. And by November, they were bringing in a new producer and a new director and more writers. Um, by the grace of God, the third producer. You know, we'd had Schlatter, we'd had uh, Norman Jewison. Gary Smith got upped to producer in there as well. Norman Jewison was executive producer, and Gary stayed over for the next 13 episodes. But Bill Colloran, who had done countless variety shows and was a total Garland fan, came in as her executive producer. And as he said, he walked in and looked at the tapes, and he said, what are they doing to her? Yeah, right. What exactly. are they doing to her? This is the greatest singer. You know, why isn't she singing? He said the audio problems on the show were so terrible. The, when the show premiered, that September 29, 1963, I was 12 years old in Milwaukee. This is non sequitur. But they, the show, we're all sitting there waiting for the Judy Garland show. I've been a fan for seven years at that point. Mm-hmm. And they started the introductory music, and I thought, God, that sounds terrible. It sounds like it's coming from the bottom of a well. The audio was just sucky, and this was the seventh show they'd taped. You know, they, had, they hadn't gotten it right up to then. But I, I remember being 12 and thinking that. Wow. Not because I was so omniscient, but because I knew what music on television could sound like. Um, and it wasn't this. <laughs> no. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Um, anyway, and then and that first show, they had her singing Call Me Irresponsible, again, highlighting all the negatives about Judy Garland. On, on the first show with, that Schlaughter did with Mickey Rooney as the guest, she opened with Keep Your Sunny Side Up. Perfect. Right. But no, now, now CBS has got her putting herself down singing Call Me Irresponsible. You know, it's one thing to have Jack Benny have everybody put him down because that's part of the shtick. Like everybody making fun of his cheapness and doing all the things that Jack Benny was supposed to. I get that, but for Judy Garland, it makes no sense at all. Well, as one of the critics said, when I think it was, it might have been in the Chicago Sun-Times, but I'm not sure. Anyway, when CBS canceled the show in January of 64, uh, one of the critics summed, up, summed it up and said, they hired Judy because she was a star, and then they wouldn't let her be one. The conversation with John Fricke on Judy Garland continues in the second part of this interview, available now. Please subscribe to this podcast, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends about us. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>